Hello, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. It's a bi-weekly show about the green economy in Canada, the current affairs, the politics, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. Folks, I am really excited about today's show for two reasons. First, It's our one-year anniversary. We've been in business for one year. This is our 26th episode. Thank you for listening to us all this time. And second, to mark that occasion, I've got an amazing guest on today. She's a former environment minister, a former infrastructure minister. Yep, Catherine McKenna. While she has now left politics, she's not slowing down. She's on the show today to talk to us about the upcoming UN Climate Conference, Can the International Community Get the Job Done?, and her unfinished business when it comes to climate change. After that, we'll hear a 60-second summary of a major new report, and we cap it all off with our regular list of five other things happening in the green economy this week. That's today's agenda. Buckle up. It's the 26th UN Climate Change Conference and it begins... Climate conference will see tens of thousands of people from almost every country arrive in Glasgow. Johnson insists that COP26 can be the beginning of the end of climate change. In two weeks, countries around the world will descend on Glasgow, Scotland, or as the locals call it, Glasgow, for the 26th UN meeting on climate change. It's the fifth meeting since the breakthrough Paris Agreement in 2015, and many are calling it a make-or-break moment for keeping global climate change in check. What are the big issues on the table? Who are the key players? And is there cause for optimism? Well, you'll have a hard time finding a more authoritative person to answer those questions than my next guest. Catherine McKenna served as Canada's Environment Minister from 2015 to 2019. She's the second longest serving Environment Minister in Canadian history. And in that role, she implemented a number of climate policies and also played an instrumental role at international climate negotiations just like this one. Catherine, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for coming on. Great to join the show. Catherine, the day after the federal election, September 21st, you were officially out of politics, officially leaving behind roles as Minister of Infrastructure and Minister of Environment. Yet that same week, you took off for New York to participate in the decision-making happening at Climate Week at the UN General Assembly. That doesn't sound like someone who is walking away from anything. It sounds like someone who has some unfinished business. What were you up to in New York? Um, well, I don't know if I was part of the decision making. I met decision makers. Um, I, I flew literally the day after the election uh, to New York because uh, Climate Week is an important moment. And I am trying to think about how do I play a useful role, like as small as it can be. But it's like we have less than 10 years. And uh, I got to look my kids in the eye. Um, and I feel that I've been fortunate to play a variety of different roles, including internationally. And, and I have views on what I think is useful, but I wanted to talk to folks. So went to New York. Um, I, uh, I did have a chance to meet with John Kerry. You know, I've worked together uh, when um, he was there in the Obama administration, very sadly for a year. And then, gosh, then it was Trump land. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he is obviously working very hard in the lead up to the cops. So I sort of said, is there anything I can do? And also more broadly, like, how are we going to 
actually raise ambition because it, you know the, the cop is really this cop is really about raising ambition uh, i also met with my good friend patricia espinoza um who is uh is running the cop for the un um had a great conversation uh we talked obviously about uh, raising ambition where countries are at you know what what needs to be done um also about women uh kicking it on climate because she's uh, one of the women climate leaders um and uh, I do think we need to be promoting women because uh, often women get a lot less of a billing uh, on the work on climate, not just Patricia Espinoza, but there's lots of grassroots women, indigenous women, uh, women from developing countries, youth, uh, young women. Um, and so had a good conversation about that, um, but also just caught up with friends. I, I talked to the nature folks. So the nature CEOs were all together. Uh, they're really ramping up ambition um, on climate. Um, so we had a good conversation. Uh, that's a space I'm really interested in as well. Anyway, I saw a bunch of people, friends, but also uh, people that I've worked with in the past to just get a sense of what's going on. And it is something that I'm thinking about. Like, how do you play a useful role on the only thing that you you really care about? Yeah. How And, and did you get a sense of how uh, you might be able to influence, how you might be able to support You know what sounds like a, a crucial meeting happening uh, in a couple of weeks? Now that you're on the outside? Uh, look, I'm not going to overstate my importance in this meeting, um, but the good news is climate change isn't going to happen all at the COP. Um, in fact, this is going to be a very challenging COP for a variety of reasons, COVID, but uh, I also think, I mean, raising ambition, we're just not there on every country raising ambition. Like, look, okay, so what is important in this COP? Maybe let's just get to that. It's yeah. not, I'm not solving this. This is just actually what's going to be important. Um so it's about raising ambition. So what does that mean? Every five years, every country has to come back and be more ambitious. And it's been really stark because we have an IPCC report saying like we're seeing what like the, the, the changes um, in extreme weather. I mean, we're about 10 years ahead of where we thought we were. Um, and we're really far off staying below two degrees, striving for 1.5. And as Greta eloquently put it, I love, you know, how she does it. She's like, enough, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so I think that is uh, that is a thing. So going into COP, I know there's a lot of efforts to get more countries to raise ambition. Countries like Australia, yes, looking at you, Australia. Um, but there's a number of other countries, and some are very hard. Brazil, very hard. Um, but, you know, there's hope that China will do more. China made a big announcement, which was uh, phasing out. Uh, stopping to invest sorry, internationally in, in coal. So that's that's obviously an important piece. But okay. you know, the hope is they will raise ambition in particular in the short term, not just by 2050, but by 2030. Um, so there's that discussion. But, but at the same time, there's a discussion about climate finance. And this is a discussion that's been going on since I was there ever, you know, before me, but certainly I COP21. Um, and that's, it's called the pathway to hundred billion. It, it, it's, it's in a weird, in a weird, it's a weird conversation in a way because we need trillions of dollars um, to be invested in climate action. But developing countries have rightly said, we've done the least to call climate change. Um, so you need to step up developed countries. And while you're doing all your build back better, spending billions of, or maybe in the US case, trillions of dollars on yourself, like you need to support us, but not just on mitigating emissions, but adapting to the impacts of climate change. Mm -hmm. And then they want to see 50% of the money being grants versus loans. So in terms of climate aid for developing countries, those twin goals of getting to $100 billion, uh, as an annual investment, that, that was a commitment that yep. was made back in 2009, and we've been kind of inching closer to it. 
sounds like we're getting close, not quite there yet. But then, as you say, also, you know, making sure that at least half of that uh, comes in the way of grants, just money handed over to to developing countries rather than these loans, which, you know, uh, have to be paid back. How how close do you feel uh, we are to to landing on both those things uh, in time for COP? I mean, I, look, I think um, I think that Minister Wilkinson would be a way better place. I mean, what I hear is that it's looking good-ish. I, mean, I don't know if that's a word, but uh, it, it, there's certainly work to do to get to 100 billion. Fifty uh, percent is harder. Like even Canada probably has to dig a bit deeper on that one. Um, and I think it's not unreasonable. I mean, people, we are investing humongous quantums in our own economies, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, more debt. Uh, we, we just have to think about that. And also, the money can also like this money is useful to leveraging the private sector because as I said, like we need to get trillions. Like mm-hmm. it's one thing to say. 100 billion like we just know it's it's quantums more and mark carney's been very good on that he's uh-huh. works very hard i think he's he managed to get 90 trillion dollars um you know of, of companies businesses financial institutions insurers representing 90 trillion dollars mm-hmm. uh to commit to net zero although i mean you know the, we need to make sure that gets the real reductions including the shorter term but yeah, so those are some of the issues. I mean, I could get into technical issues like the Article 6 and the market stacks, <laughs> which I worked on. I really won't do that. Um, I don't know that if that's – I don't know that that will be achieved at this COP. Um, okay. It will probably Article be – I think it's a different – I think it's a different COP. Like I think it's a COP where it's not so much a negotiating COP. It's hopefully people are announcing new targets. They're okay. announcing the you know new commitments on financing. Okay. So in other words – for this COP to be a success in your eyes, just getting countries to raise their level of ambition um, in line with with what's needed to to hit kind of that one and a half degree uh, level of global warming, that that would be a success. Or are there other things? Well, that you're I looking just for? don't think like we got to also manage expectations. I think it's pretty hard to imagine we'll get there. The IEA just did a report um, that mm-hmm. that was out. And instead, we've still got a long way to go. The, the commitments, sure, there have been significant commitments from Paris, since Paris and leading into Glasgow, uh, but we're still very far off. So uh, I, I do not think that that we're likely able to achieve that. Um, and that's hard. And we also, you know, some countries are could be, you know, a, a bit reluctant given that we've seen real challenges um, on power, um, like the coal. People are now trying to get more coal. I was like, gosh, this is where we are. Yeah. I do think it means we have to be smarter about the transition. You can't blame renewables for the fact that you didn't have a path when you said you're getting off coal um, or getting off nuclear. Like we need to be a little bit more disciplined. But hmm. you know, I think it's it's a tricky thing. But but the good thing is, or bad thing is, I mean, it's not all about a cop. And so I think everyone focuses on the cop. Yeah, this is sustained action where you raise ambition over time. That doesn't mean this isn't an important cop. It is. Um, but you know, we, we, we got to keep on working. We're yeah. not going to solve this, this at the cop. We got to keep on grinding away. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I want I want to circle back. I mean, you're starting to, uh, to reference kind of the, the energy crises that are, uh, being faced by some countries around the world right now. And, you know, all of these issues converging, um, in Glasgow in a couple of weeks, but first on the actual meeting, you know, you've participated in tons of these, including uh, playing an instrumental role at the Paris uh, conference in 2015. You're familiar with these corridors um, and the kind of, you know, the work that has to be done. 
um, what's going on behind the scenes? You know, what's what's uh, what's the arm twisting that's happening? Um, if you were in these corridors this year, you know, whose whose arms would you be trying to twist? Who would you be going after? Uh, well, I mean, there's obviously key players that are doing the arm twisting. Um, that's certainly the UK as host. Uh, and that's also, um, I mean, Italy is, is a co-host. So assume they're arm twisting. I think they need their arm twisted maybe a bit too. I'm not sure. But uh, I mean, the US is certainly John Kerry has been crisscrossing the globe. Although I think people are saying, well, are you doing enough at home? Are you going to deliver on some of the commitments? Like, you know, we, we, ha- we, we raised our target. Um, there was a lot of focus on Canada raising targets by the U.S. And, you know, they still haven't made some of the commitments we've made, like, you know, 100 percent electric vehicles by 2035 and they don't have a price solution. But, you know, look, I I mean, I think that arm twisting is going on. Um, I think, uh, you know, Canada is probably twisting arms, too. Um, And uh, with Germany on the financing, I hope so. They better be twisting arms. That's what this is all about. (laughs) I mean, carrot sticks. yeah. having chats and then thinking about outside. I always in the negotiations, I'd be like outside the box who can help like, you know, is a particular company that's very committed on climate. Do they play a significant role in that country? Okay. Is there an environmental organization? Like, I, I don't know. At one point we were like in the Pope. Um, and uh, so you gotta, like, right. these are negotiations. You gotta be creative. Um, and uh, you really, you know, ideally you gotta just meet your goals and that requires a lot of work hard virtually like people say oh you should just do everything virtually negotiation is very hard you can't do that so you touched down on the u.s um you know uh john kerry's been been traveling the world trying to to twist some arms uh ahead of this conference maybe they need to uh, focus on delivering on their own commitments um you also touched down on the uk and italy as, as co-hosts um i'm curious about you know what you think about the roles of a couple other countries let's start with china the world's largest emitter uh a climate action tracker you know, says, you know, their current commitments are highly insufficient. Um, Yet there've been some positive signs over the past year. What's, what's China's role at this upcoming COP? Oh, China is critically important, right? They, they, like the G20, like they play a very, very important role. Um, So that's why I think people are hoping um, that they will increase ambition, uh, including to 2030, I, they, I mean, they obviously made a big announcement saying they're not going to finance um, coal in developing countries, but mm-hmm. I think people are like, okay, that's also at home. Uh, China does not like being pushed um, necessarily. Uh, and it's complicated in, from a geopolitical uh, context and that will come as no surprise to folks here, but that's mm-hmm. also true with the relationship with the U S okay. um, and so I think that, you know, there's probably a lot of efforts to getting China on board and having China support other countries because other countries, there are a number of other countries that will respond much uh, more quickly um, to to China, you know, encouraging them, cajoling them, maybe pressuring them. So they they play an important role. Um, but yeah, as you say, is the largest, uh, you know, is the, I can't remember, they're the second largest, they're the largest, uh, the largest emitter, second largest economy in the world, obviously. Yeah. They, they play an outsized role. Okay. Um, and what about Germany? Germany's, you know, another one, they just went through an election. Looks like a Green Party, the Green Party in Germany will have, uh, will be playing a role in government. Um, yet they're also in the middle of this energy shortage uh, that you that you uh, referenced earlier, um, which has some people blaming renewable energy in that country. What, uh, what role does Germany need to play uh, at this uh, upcoming meeting? 
It's interesting because I've been to a lot of conferences, but summits just generally in, in different spaces. And there's always a backdrop. So unfortunately, there's a backdrop here that is an amazing backdrop. Canada starting the Powering Past Coal Alliance um, and Bloomberg uh, Philanthropies was part of it. And like, you know, ideally we'd be getting everyone to join that, be more ambitious on coal. But right now, because of these energy shortages, just domestically, um, governments are making the decision like they just don't have a choice. So they're just trying to get more coal, um, more natural gas if they can. Uh, it's just, it, it, that is obviously really, really um, complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and domestic politics always plays a role, right? Like, you know, if you're going to go have a new target or you're going to put in money for finance uh, for developing countries, you got to get, you got to get your domestic audience. Mm-hmm. But having said all that, so I don't really know like that context of the German, the German context and the coal piece, but they are working very hard on the financing piece. And Germany has an important role um, including because of who their negotiator is, like it, players actually matter too. people that have been around for a long time and, and people want climate action. As you say, the greens are, are, um, you know, a significant part of, uh, of the coalition. Yeah. Does it make it harder? I mean, Germany's just one of these countries facing an energy shortage right now. Um, there's, you know, places in Asia, China and India. Uh, does it make it harder for, for those countries to, to make increased uh, kind of commitments at COP26 if, they, if they're facing these kind of domestic, these domestic issues, as you say? Probably. Okay. Because, I mean, one of the most effective ways to reduce emissions is get off coal, like make a commitment. I was kind of hoping if everyone just said they were going to get off coal, I mean, that would be a substantial uh, reduction in emissions. You know, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, it's hard to just go announce you're getting off coal if you're having to use more coal or, or thinking you have to use more coal. Yeah. So, that is that is a challenge, but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, your ambition, your target isn't necessarily linked to one policy. It's just a target. So maybe you will see more ambition and then people have to figure out later how they'll get there. Figure out how they get there. Um, okay. Uh, I, I want to I want to ask you a couple of questions, but I know you need to go uh, shortly. We'll do the speed round. We'll do the, the speed, speed round. round. Speed speed. Question number one. You mentioned Greta Thunberg and blah, blah, blah. For those who haven't heard that clip, I'm going to put it in right now. There is no planet B. There is no planet blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Build back better. Blah, blah, blah. Green economy. Blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050. Blah, blah, blah. Net zero. Blah, blah, blah. Climate neutral. Blah, blah, blah. Our hopes and dreams drown in their empty words and promises. Um, that one kind of struck a chord, and, and I, I saw you respond to it on social media. It obviously struck a chord with you. Uh, is, is there too much talk and not enough walk in the international climate space? Well, I mean, like, first of all, it's just like, awesome, blah, blah, blah. Like I literally sit in meetings and I'm like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then I worry because they, I'm sure at the COP, millions of people will be all these new announcements. And like, you're not even sure if they're real things. Like there's this new pledge, there's this thing, mm. whatever. I just like targets, metrics, like, you know, where you have to do it. The Montreal Protocol was amazing because on HSCs, like, you just had to do it, and it was science-based. So, yeah, I get worried uh, about blah, blah, blah. Having said that, I mean, people people are digging deep and actually doing work. So I don't want to diminish. That's always a worry, right? Like, you don't want to set up everyone up for failure. I actually think people are doing work. But I think it is a risk that people sit around, they sign up to new things, and they all congratulate themselves, and then emissions aren't going down. They're just going up. So yeah. I don't just math, just math. 
Okay, let me get you uh, your thoughts on a couple domestic questions. Um, I, I want to ask you about climate politics in Canada. How, how optimistic are you about Canada uh, being able to advance towards its own targets? I'm pretty optimistic because in the, in the end, like climate is all about people. And we had an election in 2019, uh, Liberals won, but the majority of Canadians supported parties that had a price on pollution. Maybe that wasn't the full issue, but it was definitely a big issue in the election. Greta here, you had climate marches, and then we increased the carbon price, and then we went into another election, the 20, uh, well, the, the election we just had, 2021. And, uh, you know, also, uh, you know, maybe it wasn't like an amazing majority, but it was a, uh, you know, the, the Liberals came back to, to power. So I think that bodes well, um, but it's always digging deep. I mean, it's good we have our new net zero legislation. Um, it's also mm-hmm. good in the platform. They said, like, actually, oil and gas companies, we're going we're gonna to take a sector um, and they're going to have to be part of it. And that's a real problem. Uh, I think that you were going to maybe ask, so I may preempt the second question, but about provinces. Like, the reality is people always blame the federal government. Like, you, why aren't you doing more? We're a target. Like, you're not getting the reductions. The reality is, you know, you can regulate, but in the end, like a lot of these emissions are in the control of a particular government. Mm -hmm. So if you look at our emissions, and I really wish we would like publish this every day in the newspaper or something, but what provinces, where are the emissions coming from? You know, many provinces emissions are going down, flatlined, but the provinces that are going up are Alberta and Saskatchewan. And like, so you could retrofit every house and building, you could plant a bazillion, trillion, gazillion trees, and it wouldn't matter because it's so significant. And I think this is something that the rubber has to hit the road on this. I'm glad that there's going to be, you know, they're going to have to have five-year targets and they're going to show the pathway to net zero because it's not enough to say, and this is one thing that actually does make me bananas, but it's like emissions intensity per barrel has gone down. I don't care. Mm. I mean, like, okay, that's good. But it doesn't, your emissions intensity per bearable going down doesn't matter if your emissions are going up like this. It doesn't help Canada meet a target where it's got to go like this. And in fact, it makes it more difficult for every, and more expensive, by the way, for everyone else. And so we really need provinces to be part uh, of the program. Um, It's not fun having to go all the way to the Supreme Court to win policies. But I believe if, you know, people don't want to do the things that you need to do, and you provide them flexibility to design something, you know, within a framework. They don't do it. You, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you know, move forward on that. Okay, so, so big role for provinces. Uh, that's maybe not getting enough attention, and uh, big focus on the oil and gas sector. Calling it out. Let me ask you one last question, Catherine. Um, uh, Adam Rodwanski has a piece in the Globe and Mail today talking about you know, the need for a whole-of-government approach to climate change. Uh, he's suggesting a, uh, a kind of a tiger team within cabinet. Um, you've had, you know, two high-profile roles within cabinet. You brought a climate lens to the infrastructure portfolio. You know, what do you think of that? Do you think this is something that's needed at the federal government level for to have more cabinet ministers more profoundly involved in, in climate policy? I mean, look, I think like it's, the prime minister said it's cross government. Um, we have it in the Privy Council office, which is, you know, it actually plays a very important coordinating role in the public service side. We have people at the prime minister's office focused on climate, but it's still very hard. You have certain departments that uh, for whatever reason, they do not aren't as ambitious as they need to be. 
And that makes it extremely challenging because it's all in the weight of the environment minister. So you got to go lobby. You got to internally, it's all internally, you got to lobby internally. You got to get a minister involved. got to get a public service involved. You got to get ambition. And then, you know, you don't control all the processes that would be required to get the outcome. So even if they agree to something, are they actually driving the change you need? Mm. So I think this idea potentially of a super ministry, I think is really interesting. Having ministers that are enabled and having a true cross-government approach um, I have very specific views. One day I could go into it, like including our memorandums to cabinet. We should just have climate lens on those. I, you have to say, how are you absolutely driving down the maximum emissions? How are you doing the maximum to sure that, uh, that you will be resilient to climate change? That still is not there. So there's, there's other things that can be done. It's not just that, but Adam Rudowatsky, it's a good piece. Have a look. Okay. Um, Miss McKenna, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I know we're, uh, we're I'd like you to the Miss McKenna. That's so fancy. <laughs> yeah. At least well, you don't call me, you don't call me honorable. Like, Gosh, that's McKenna, right. That's, or, or like minister. That's over. Like, that's right. Yeah. I'm editing out the minister now um, for your post-political life. Well, I love what you're doing. This podcast is great. I'll also SP. Uh, you guys do great stuff. So it's great. And everyone who's listening, just keep on driving climate action however you can. That was Catherine McKenna, former Minister of Environment and Climate Change and former Minister of Infrastructure and Communities for the Government of Canada. For links coming out of that conversation with Catherine McKenna, um, including that new piece by Adam Radwanski in the Globe and Mail, please go to this episode's website at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now it's time for the 60-second report. It's something we do every show. It's where we invite the author of a major new report to sum it all up in 60 seconds or less. This week, we're featuring a new report from the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices titled Underwater, the Cost of Climate Change for Canada's Infrastructure. To sum up that report in 60 seconds, here is co-author Ryan Ness. Canada's infrastructure isn't prepared for the climate crisis. How big of a problem is that, and what can we do about it? These are the questions we set out to answer in our report Underwater, the largest study to date on the impacts of climate change on Canada's infrastructure. We focus on three types of climate change impacts, flooding of homes and buildings, damage and disruption to roads and railways, and impacts to Canada's electricity grids. The key takeaway? Climate impacts could leave Canadians underwater, physically and financially, to the tune of tens of billions of dollars annually. More frequent flooding of homes and buildings will increase damage costs from about $1 billion each year to over $5 billion annually over the next few decades. Extreme weather will disrupt transportation and power. To respond, we discuss how governments can make important policy choices that will direct public and private investment toward more resilient infrastructure. Thank you, Ryan. For a link to that new report from the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices, go to this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now, there's a lot happening in the green economy every week, more than I can cover on my own, and for everything else, I turn to my colleague, Mike Moffat. Mike is a senior director here at Smart Prosperity Institute, and here he is with five other things happening in the green economy this week. I'm Mike Moffat, and here are five things that I'm watching this week. 
Number one, energy shortages are leading to record-breaking energy prices and power outage risks in the United Kingdom, Europe, China, India, and other parts of the world. The widespread energy shortages are attributed mainly to a bumpy economic recovery from COVID-19, in which electricity systems haven't been prepared for the sudden rebound in industrial energy needs. Number two, a trio of climate scientists have been awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics. The scientists, who hail from Germany, Italy, and the United States, were recognized for their lifetime contributions to the physical modeling of the Earth's climate and the development of scientific methods to reliably predict global warming. Number three, the global fossil fuel industry benefits from $11 million in subsidies every single minute, according to an analysis by the International Monetary Fund. The analysis found that not a single country is pricing fossil fuels to reflect their true costs, and eliminating subsidies to the fossil fuel industry would cut global carbon emissions by more than a third. Number four, a World Health Organization report calls climate change, quote, the single biggest health threat facing humanity. The burning of fossil fuels is killing us. The report is supported by a letter signed by 400 health bodies, representing 45 million health practitioners worldwide, asking governments to act urgently. Number five, with the UN climate conference approaching, the world's biggest companies are making major climate promises. Last week, 28 mining companies, including Canada's Barrick Gold, pledged to be carbon neutral by the year 2050. McDonald's made a similar commitment, promising to tackle the emissions in its supply chain. And the International Air Transport Association also committed to net zero by 2050. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things that I'm watching this week. Thanks, Mike. If you want to see this week's top five list, Mike has it written out for you at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. That's it for another episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. As usual, I want to remind you that the views shared on this podcast are not necessarily those of Smart Prosperity Institute. We just like having smart, evidence-based conversations about the green economy. I'm Eric Campbell. I want to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. Finally, thank you for listening. It's listeners that keep this nonprofit podcast in business. The next episode is out October 27th.